As we come to the end of the sitting, let's take a few moments to bring into the group those we're holding in our hearts, perhaps because of a particular challenge or maybe a special joy. We can bring them into the group by speaking their name and just a short description of their situation. And when we've all arrived, we'll end our sitting. We have about a 10-minute break, and I'll ring the bell. And it gets close to 11.
waiting to be made, announcements that are waiting to be made? Okay. I know everybody really liked the visual aid last week, so I'm going to use it again. <laughs> um, I never get really far from from the four truths because um, the Buddha basically said he taught suffering and the end of suffering. He taught about dukkha, which is the Pali word that we translate as suffering or dissatisfaction and the end of dukkha and it's a, a, he had an incredibly deep powerful insight and what was also amazing was that he was able to articulate it in a way that's enabled other people to find their way to that same insight and we 2500 years later we're still talking about that realization, that insight that he had. And often it gets lost in all of the random discussions, random discussions, all of the all of the the talking about karma and multiple lifetimes and who gets reborn and you know heaven realms and how should we sit when we're meditating and what are the five you know the ten paramis. It just gets scattered all over, but the focus of his teaching was this insight that came to him on, on the night of his awakening that he articulated as um, the four, what we know as the four noble truths. And it's a particularly uh, useful um, articulation. But contemporary scholarship is starting to form an opinion that the label four noble truths is something that was added later that it wasn't the Buddha's idea. Um, I've even, I've even um, heard one scholar suggest it was Sariputta's idea. I have no idea. I'm, you know. Stephen Batchelor just calls them the four. And recently he's been calling them the four tasks. And with each of these Truths. I'll just I'll refer to them as truths, just because conventionally that's how we know them. With each of these truths, there is, uh, as the as the Buddha presented them, there's a task associated with them. So what I'd like to do today is to go through the, these truths. Last week we talked about the middle path and how it it uh, factored in to the to the uh, the Buddha's insight. I'd like to go through the same material, but from the perspective of uh, four tasks, because each of these each of these um, truths, 
teachings has a task that the Buddha assigned with it. So the, the, the task is for the first teaching is to understand dukkha. The first truth is the truth or the teaching about the existence of the reality of uh, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, unpleasantness, pain, what we don't want. In in the prison settings where I teach, I just where I teach in context, mental health context, where it's not appropriate to talk about the Buddha, we just say shit happens. You know, all I mean, isn't that isn't that right? And nobody's messed out. Sometimes I say we step in and track it around and then wonder why everything stinks. You know. The first task is to understand dukkha. The second teaching is the teaching on the origin of dukkha or dissatisfaction. And the task associated with it is to abandon tanha, which the Buddha identifies as the condition that turns unpleasantness into suffering. So the task is to abandon tanha. The third task is, well, the third truth, the third teaching. Well, let me just back up. In the prison context, I'll say about tanha, we usually make things worse. So shit happens and we usually make things worse. But we don't have to. That's the third truth, the third teaching. The teaching of the cessation of suffering. And here's how the Eightfold Path and the Eightfold Path, well, the third, the third teaching, the third truth is to be realized. We're to realize the, the cessation of dukkha and the task associated with the fourth truth is to cultivate it, to cultivate the teaching. In that Eightfold Path, um, the Buddha makes it clear that the primary element is right view, what he calls right view, right understanding. He says one of right understanding will formulate right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, will undertake right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration, and one without right view will not. So actually... You know, if we look really closely, what right view, what do we mean by a view? A view is our understanding. It's what we recognize, what we know. It's our knowledge, our beliefs, our opinions. It's the map we have of our experience. If I ask you what's going on, you're going to respond, you're going to tell me a view, a viewpoint, a story, a narrative. It's a cognitive knowledge. It's like the map on your GPS. What's, what's happening? What's here? Right view. What? How do we understand dukkha? And the and the the task here is to cultivate, um, to cultivate the eightfold path. And I'd like to say something, sort of about the implicit biases that are often built into metaphor that we don't notice. I talked last week about 
bias is built into the notion of a path. You know, the path, if the path is going somewhere, um, then we become really focused on where we're going. The path becomes less important. Um, we use the path to get there. But if the path is a circle, and the, or, the, or a walking path, and the idea is to get on the path and stay on the path, to just be on the path, uh, it's a, there's a different understanding about what we're doing on a path. So I think that um, I want to bring that up because right view or right understanding is the understanding which enables us to live without suffering, without dukkha. And classically, it's taught as understanding impermanence unsatisfactoriness and not-self or emptiness. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And to the extent that it's about understanding dukkha, it's the same as the first task. And so really the task, the four tasks, become one task, which is understand dukkha. It's easy, it's not so easy to abandon tanha and its products if you don't understand what's going on. So understanding dukkha is the, is the deepest of the understandings. It's really the purpose of the Buddha's teaching was to understand what this is that we're, that's, that's messing with us and uh, learn how to avoid it. The opposite of right view, as I described last night or last week, was um, the opposite is not right is wrong view, but delusion. And the idea over time is for the delusion to end. And there's another metaphor about our progress on the path. There's the raft that goes to the other side. But the implication here is you're either on the water or you're standing on the shore. So it's an either-or kind of a situation. When you use the word enlightenment, you're either enlightened or you're not. You're either awakened or you're not. It becomes sort of a binary thing, which I think is just, you know, if you really knew all this stuff, you'd, are you enlightened? Would you be enlightened? You know. But I think that delusion is not so much like you're deluded or you're not. It's more like a cloud. You know, clouds exist based on the conditions that are present at the, at, at the time. It's, it, a, the word cloud is a noun. It makes the cloud a thing. But, you know, when the conditions change and the air gets warmer, the cloud evaporates. And as understanding deepens, delusion evaporates. But it's not like on or off, as you can see more clearly. So it's a progressive thing. In fact, the task here is to cultivate right view. And with cultivation, it's not like you've either got a plant or you don't have a plant. You know, you, and you create the conditions for the, for the plant to arise. It happens on its own. Dogen, who was a uh, 
founder of the Soto Zen school of Zen, he, he said, delusion is only delusion about enlightenment. And enlightenment is enlightenment about delusion. And you could say, similarly, delusion is delusion about right view, about dukkha. And right view is the understanding of delusion. I want to talk a little bit about cultivating right view, and particularly the right view or an understanding, an appropriate understanding. Just say what, just, you know, in the, was it Teddy Roosevelt that said, tell him what you're going to say, say it, and then tell him what you said? Is that, was it? I think it was. So, so where I'm going is that dukkha is a dependently arisen phenomenon that can be deconditioned by right understanding. And, um, so I want to, that's, that's, that's where I'm headed. The delusions, the primary delusions that we are, I mean, not a lot of talk about delusion. How do you know when you're deluded? And, you know, the, the, the big clue is you think you're not. <laughs> think you got it. Oh, I got it now, yeah. But it would be delusion about anicca, dukkha, anatta would be about, well, about dukkha. Delusion, delusion about dukkha. The idea is, you know, we think, don't we proceed as if we are going, we can satisfy ourselves? We're still working at it, still trying to get there. <laughs> it's, our, it's our strategy. We imagine what will make us happy and then we go for it. Usually what will make us happy is some something pleasant, right? I mean, we don't go for the unpleasant stuff particularly. We don't wake up and say, yesterday was too darn good. <laughs> you know, I remember that lousy restaurant. Let's <laughs> we don't. I mean, we're just not built that way. That's, you know, part of the understanding. The Buddha talked about tanha, as an underlying disposition to, well, the, in, in the second truth here, you can see it's there at Kamatanha, Bhavatanha, and Vibhavatanha. Bhavatanha is usually translated as becoming and left at that. He's, the Buddha is talking about the subjective experience of our wanting to continue on, to be in the future, to survive, to become something, anything just to be in the future. And we've got this incredibly powerful brain that enables us to make predictions. You know, and it works in a particular way. It, it works, it creates nouns and verbs. You know, it's not like we invented nouns and verbs. It's like, this, you know how the spider makes a web? It's just, it's just the way it's designed. It doesn't say, you know, I think a circular web would be better in this circumstance. <laughs> there's no discussion of whether it would be better to have a raggedy web like the Black Widows or a nice pretty one. Like, 
you know, and language is the way we it's the way we formulate our language. We make predictions. I have a book that's been sitting on my end table for quite some time now. It's called Homo Prospectus. And I, I'm starting to think that the whole message is in the title. You know, we're we're designed to make predictions and, and the power of the, the brain is that it's made us really successful. But we're also designed designed to be always wanting to advance our agenda, which is to live forever or die trying. (laughs) And it's always, look, you know, is this meeting better to go to than that party? And should I say something nice to this person? And how do I, you know, we're we're always advancing our agenda. We navigate by pleasant and unpleasant. It's how... Um our creator natural selection <laughs> robert wright has a has a, um, a book called why buddhism is true um and he's uh, he he refers to our creator as natural selection which i think is cute um, we don't come with a manual we come with reception of pleasant and unpleasant experiences the factor in the second uh, the second foundation of mindfulness, be aware of the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, kamatanha. Our disposition is to want our experience pleasant. Vibhavatanha, the desire, the disposition to make unpleasant experience go away. And tanha gives rise to greed, hatred, and delusion. What are often referred to as the three poisons, but actually the Buddha meant them as the three fires because he was making a parody of the three fires that were in Brahmin temples. Um, in the Brahmin household, there would be the fire of creation and the fire that matched the life of the patriarch, and I can't remember what, but the Buddha was saying, three fires, you know, here, greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, we're tending those fires. And so one of those, you know, tanha itself is, is a disposition, it's a proclivity. It's not particularly observed directly. We observe greed, wanting, and not wanting, aversion, anger, and fear. But we are designed to constantly want to advance our agenda. We advance it by navigating through pleasant and unpleasant and how we understand the consequences of our, our, um, our, our behavior. We, we plan and scheme and do alternative stuff. The ideas advance our agenda. We get satisfied with one thing and the next thing comes up because the task is never done. Dukkha you know, satisfaction is not in the cards for us. Momentary passing relief when we get something we want, we've been wanting. But it all passes, it all changes. So the delusion that guides us is that we can satisfy ourselves. That's mostly why I'll just speak personally, this is all about me and you <laughs> you know, maybe you're not like this. And 
then the 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 second the second delusion is is um, about anicca impermanence and anatta, which everybody dodges around because nobody quite knows what to do with it. But anicca is the the word that translates as impermanence. And even though we know about impermanence, it doesn't take much to know about impermanence conceptually. We still go, oh no, I broke my favorite mug. Oh, I spilled wine on my favorite... Oh, we're not drinking wine. We spilled whatever it is on my favorite... You know, we we lost a friend. Things changed. You know. So we know about it, but it's not so much viscerally, deeply. So as our insight into that deepens, we're not we're less and less surprised. You know, impermanence, yeah, I know about impermanence, but not the Bill of Rights. <laughs> you know, we're attached to our rugs and the Bill of Rights. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then anatta, which means no atman, no no self, no entity here. It's related to anicca because there is just changing experience. There are two ways that I understand anatta. The first is not self. There's nothing you can point to that is yourself. Or it is a self for you. Because everything changes. So there's nothing stable there. The Buddha um, dispensed with the idea of identity and instead used the work with the concept of uh, continuity, perception of continuity. We perceive continuity and then we ascribe identity to that. But we're basically, it's a perception. Second is that not self, no entity, no entity there. Not a thing. Nouns occur in language, but not in our experience. If everything is changing, there's nothing. The cloud, is it a thing? Where did it go? Was it a thing? All things that arise pass. That's just the way change, change works. Emptiness. And I think, I think really at the base, dependent origination. The notion of dependent origination is that all things arise based on the conditions which give rise to them. The cloud arises when moisture in the air is at a certain point, and I'm not a meteorologist, and the air is, you know, there's, it's warmish or not so warm, and I, that's, that's the non-scientific vision of clouds. But, our anger arises dependent on conditions. Our joy, um, pain. You know, all things arise based on conditions and pass when the conditions change. Particularly what we think of as ourself. So the delusion about anatta is that you know, there is something substantial, an agent happening. But I think, you know, neuroscience will tell us that intentions arise about 
200 milliseconds, about a fifth of a second after uh, they arise before we become aware of them. Thoughts, too. You know, you sit to, you know, close your eyes, pay attention to your breath, and what happens? Thoughts come. Were they the thoughts you were wanting to come? No, they just show up. And they're already underway by the time you become conscious of them. They're happening on their own, dependently arisen, based on our experience. You know, each of us, you know, the thoughts that arise in your meditation don't include my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's your experience and your understanding and the brain doing its, its calculations. And it's always on. You know, in my experience, it's always on. Sometime in the prison, I say, can you control your thoughts? Can you stop? Oh, yeah. Are you doing that thinking? Yeah. I say, okay, well, let's take a couple of minutes here and see if you can shut it down. And, of course, it's <laughs> it, it, it doesn't happen. And then I say, well... Who's doing that thinking if you, you aren't? Yeah. The thoughts arise based, based on causes and conditions, the whole surrounding. Everything is embedded in everything. And things arise out of, out of conditions. And what happens is, is that we you know, because it's the way our brain helps us survive and advance. We believe our thoughts. Right? We can be sure of what's pure subjectivity. You stub your toe, you know you've got pain in your foot. You know, you might not know the reason why a solar eclipse happens, you know, or why the moon happens to be the same size as the sun. and I mean, but you know when you're... You, know, you may not know whether the Dalai Lama really is the reincarnation of the other Dalai Lama or not. But you know for sure that you don't know. There's no need for doubt. <laughs> you know. Dukkha is a feeling in the body. It's something we experience physically and viscerally. But it, uh, it arises in, in our thought, in our mind, in our thought process. Let me give you some examples of, of dukkha, because what we want to do here is to explore dukkha from several different perspectives. Let's think of fear. Fear is considered dukkha. One of my friends, some of these examples I've used before. One of my friends was at work on a Friday afternoon and her boss came by her cubicle and said, Monday morning, first thing, we got to talk. And her weekend, you know, doesn't matter whether there was a party, you know, she's got that going in the, in the, it turned out okay. Um, you're sitting in meditation and your knee starts to hurt. And you go, oh my God, I got another half hour here. I'll never make it. It's, you know, it's really hurting. And if I sit here and don't move, I'm not going to be able to get up. I remember that story about Joseph. I don't know what, you know, and, and I won't be, if I can't walk and my knee is broken, then I won't, 
You know, that's how the mind does. It adds that stuff on to whatever, there's some pain there, and then we proliferate about it. Or you got a, a doctor's appointment. You know, fear, you're just going, oh no, I, I, I gotta go, I don't wanna go. All that, dukkha, we add it on to what's already present. That second truth, that second teaching. That second teaching, you know, to abandon, the task is to abandon the fear, the anger that arises. So I want to talk a little bit about some different ways of thinking about dukkha. First one is complaints. Complaint is a an expression of dissatisfaction. Right? You know, we don't. <laughs> it, we complain whether it's justified or not. It's our response to whatever is going on. It's not satisfactory. You know, it can be a little irritation. There, dukkha may not exhaust all the unsatisfied, I mean, not not Duga, but complaint may not exhaust all possibilities for dissatisfaction, but where there's complaint, there's Dukkha. And you can actually recast the four teachings, such as complaint, such the origin of complaint, such the cessation of complaint, and the way of living without complaining. (laughs) Complaint is a dependently arisen phenomenon. We don't complain about the pleasant stuff. We complain about what's unpleasant in our experience. What may be unpleasant to us may not be unpleasant to somebody else. May be irritating to somebody else. I watched the movie The Graduate recently and there's that crazy scene where Dustin Hoffman is rushing across the upper deck of the Bay Bridge in the wrong direction. You remember that? It's just, well, that can really, really destroy <laughs> the tone if you go, wait a minute. It could be something trivial. It could be, you know, Trump is dukkha. But what makes him dukkha is our response to him. He's certainly flailing around you know, bashing and crashing. But, you know, our response doesn't need to be complaint. Complaint comes out of aversion, irritation, you know, out of tanha. And it mixes in. You know, it mixes in with, well, it's like with the knee pain and the meditation. They go together. They work, you know, you've got the pain in your knee, no question, we got the president we got, no question. But then how do we respond to it? We can respond out of aversion, anger, frustration, or out of compassion for ourselves, for living like the rest of the world in a country where our life hinges on the whim of someone who might not be entirely stable. 
It's like that. Awful lot of places. Maybe most. We can be compassionate for ourselves and for the people who... And we can... We don't have to sit idly by. We can take action. But we can take action out of compassion or out of anger. A complaint is the, is the direct expression of dissatisfaction. So, you know, explore your complaints. Look at the conditions which give rise to it. Always our understanding of how things should be. Each of us has a different idea. But it's just, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, how's your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? You can do that, right? I mean, this isn't a precision measure. You usually don't say (laughs) 4.2. You know, you give a, you know, or my dentist says, you know, bite down about a 5 on a scale. So, you you know, you, you give it a shot. We have a concept of that range of experience and we match our perception to it and you know that's what we're doing with complaint we have an idea of how things should be and we measure how things how we perceive things as being and of course it's partial we are not taking in the whole picture And so judgment and complaint come out of, out of our ideas. I, I love Byron Katie's comment. She says, you know, you can argue with the way things are. Or if you argue with the way things are, you'll lose. But only 100% of the time. <laughs> a complaint is, is dukkha. So, so the idea would be to figure a way to live a complaint-free life. How would we do that? It's a great task. Dukkha as complaint. Dukkha as the second arrow. The Buddha talks about um, the average person and the awakened person, and he says, you know, when struck by an arrow, both feel the physical pain. But the se- but the awakened person, the arhat, the you know, does not experience mental pain. Doesn't experience the second arrow. And the second arrow often is well, it's always self-inflicted. Dukkha is what we add into the mix, or what gets added into the mix because of our understanding. It's that sec- the second arrow. So some other examples. I think last week someone was talking about a, a diagnosis. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is, this is like the guy I know in Sacramento whose doctor told him that, that the headaches might be a brain tumor. Dukkha. His experience didn't change at all. But his thoughts about his experience changed. And when you think about something, your body responds to it. The emotion, you, you know, it becomes a, you know, they go together. <laughs> we respond, to, which is why when you put your attention on your breath, your body calms. When you put your attention on our president, your body doesn't. 
you know. When you put your attention on someone who's very dear to you, your body relaxes. When you put your attention on something, um, it turned out okay for the guy. It was allergies. You can think about an upcoming loss. I have to move away. I have to, you know, leave the job that I've, you know. There's all kinds of having to leave, and we can anticipate that loss. That's you know, sadness, we can imagine, but greed, imagining your Christmas present. You know, it's adding that into responding to your thinking. So the second arrow, what gives rise to the second arrow? And I think the dependent origination perspective, I, I, I don't... Uh, I'm or decreasingly, I'm increasingly not using the word emptiness to refer to this phenomenon because I just, instead of saying something's empty, I think, just say it's dependently arisen. It exists because other things exist. When the, when the conditions change, you know, we exist because we're in the biosphere. We don't exist outside the biosphere. But if we think of dukkha as a dependently arisen phenomenon, what are the conditions which give rise to it? Elements of the first truth, that list there, birth, aging, sickness, death. This is, the, this is in the text of that sutta. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want. Losing what you cherish. One of the conditions. Unpleasantness. Everything on that list is unpleasant or painful. So when unpleasantness or pain arises, and we have a a notion that it shouldn't be that way, then not only do we get reactive, we get reactive-aversive. He shouldn't be saying that. Or it shouldn't be happening this way. And then we wind up acting, reacting. It just happens. When unpleasantness happens, we react. We don't think about it. The brain just happens, it happens too fast. You know, on my way here, I had uh, animals jump in front of my car. A squirrel, you know, and you hit the brake and turn the wheel. And I didn't say to myself, there's a squirrel. If I do, I mean, you just, it just happens. It happens fast. And then a deer ran across the road way too close. And, you know, it's, the brain just, the, the, the brain makes its assessment. The foot hits the brake. You don't think about it. The adrenaline kicks in later. <laughs> maybe just a fraction of a second later, but everything's happened already. So the delusion is that we can live without unpleasantness and pain. If we recognize, if we understand that, if we understand dukkha, if we understand that first teaching, that first truth, then why complain? Let's deal with ourselves compassionately let's deal with others compassionately out of caring 
And what, what would caring mean? Well, you know, if dukkha is dependently arisen, we have to remove the conditions. Change the conditions somehow. Decultivate. Vibhavatana. <laughs> Make it go away. So we can either remove the unpleasantness, but sometimes that's not possible. And then, you know, it's why soup kitchens usually have a little sermon after they feed you. <laughs> you know, we don't necessarily need to give a Dharma talk. That usually doesn't work. Let go, let go, let go. Let go doesn't happen. You, you know, it's just like, be more, be more curious, be more excited. You know, you can't conjure that stuff quite that way. You create the conditions and it happens automatically. So we recognize the reality of that, that teaching. We can decondition by maybe telling a joke that makes it clear what you know the delusion, the misunderstanding, or the the way we were handling it, or just some some advice that draws a different picture. So we can address the greed and the aversion. And the delusion, you know, these things happen on their own. Dukkha happens on its own. We happen on our own. Our our impulses happen based on causes and conditions. Sort of like the moth and the flame. You know, the moth sees the flame, the flame is bright and warm, and the moth is designed to go after warm and bright. And it flies right in. It doesn't have the ability to study itself and, and watch its own compulsion. We have that ability, and it's what the, what the mindfulness practice is about. The Buddha said, what are, you know, said, there are two conditions that give rise to right view. One is the voice of another, and the other is appropriate attention. So we cultivate appropriate attention through our our meditation practice. We learn how to pay attention. And then we look where the teacher points, where the Buddha points. He says, pay attention to this. Basho wrote, sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. We happen by itself. It's an interesting way to put it. But none of us planned to be here, as far as I know. We just showed up. We showed up in the package we showed up in. And it's got a mind of its own. We don't, you know. So the idea is, basically, we can, we can intercept greed and aversion if we catch it soon enough. You know, I walk my dog and uh, and she's really well trained because I walk her a lot and she gets to she stays right there. But uh, a while ago I was walking along we were about, I don't know, 25, 30 feet behind a couple who had a little 
a little dog. My dog is a lab. She wants to play. So she starts bouncing up and down. And then it's like, oh my gosh, and she's tugging and pulling, and I have to get around in front of her and say, knock it off. And then she sits down, and then she's good. But if I caught her early enough, I could just go, uh uh-uh, and she would have settled. So if we can catch those responses early enough in ourselves, we can manage it. But we can deal with the delusion by recognizing that our understanding is provisional, that we don't understand, we don't have a view of any, hardly anything. 96% of the universe is dark energy, dark matter, and it's not out there in the galaxies, it's right here. We don't have a clue. And then, of course, the rest of it, the other 4%, well, we're not so good with that either. <laughs> but we think we know. We've got a practical knowledge. Basically, our understanding is designed to help us survive not to be an accurate representation of what is going on. And we recognize that our understanding is really partial, that it's based on our own experience. And why would we be surprised when things don't show up the way we expect them to? Usually, usually I, I teach the guys in right view, I teach them, I say, what did you expect you know, you thought you knew what was happening, but, you know, what do you expect? This is the way things are. Second task, abandoning tanha, happens when we understand dukkha. When we understand that it's a conditioned arising that can be dispelled with right understanding. Because with right understanding, we don't believe our delusion. We recognize that our delusion is delusion. We can't live without it. We need to be able to navigate this life. We just need to recognize that it's provisional. It's a heuristic model. It's not an accurate model. I talk about the the neuroscientists from from uh, Irvine last week who says our relationship to the world is like our relationship to our computer screen. There's, you got a little folder there? It's not really a folder. <laughs> but, it, but it represents all these bits and bytes or whatever it represents back in the computer. And even though it's not a folder, if you drag it to the trash the consequence is real. So our understanding is conventional, but it's not that it's unreal. It's just partial. And so when we say to ourselves, let go, let go, let go, Christopher Titmus used to say, if you find yourself saying, let go, let go, you've missed the boat. Because the mindful response to the situation is to recognize holding on, holding on, holding on. Let go is an aversive response. Make it go away. But if there's right understanding, it goes away automatically. If you know that holding on is not going to help, holding on is unsatisfactory in some way, maybe 
immediately painful. It may be, you know, unpleasant. As soon as you recognize that, you put it down. So, so letting go happens automatically with right view. So what we want to do is cultivate an understanding that enables us to see what the Buddha was talking about. The unsatisfactoriness our experience. It's unsatisfactory because it's going to change. Even if it's satisfactory now, it's not going to hang around. If you got everything you wanted, if the world was totally set up, that would be really sad because it'd be all downhill from there. (laughs) So you can console yourself (laughs) with that. Buddha's not much into consolation usually, but there is that. So the trick is to to, uh, learn to practice the Eightfold Path, which means to cultivate right understanding and right intention will follow. And right speech, right action, right livelihood, which really is the heart of all of it. That's what I'm in it for, to be able to live, speak, act, and assemble a life that doesn't make things worse for myself and for others. And we use the right mindfulness and right concentration as as techniques, mental cultivation. You know, the two conditions for right view, appropriate attention. That word appropriate is really, it's huge. I think I mentioned last week one of the early Zen patriarchs was asked what the essence of Zen was and his response was an appropriate response. It's not necessarily the right right response. As soon as you get into right or wrong, we get, you know, the precepts are all a negotiation between our intention and what we experience in the environment. We learn to become artisans. There's artisanship in the in the notion of practice. And it's it's improving, lifting the fog of delusion, seeing more clearly. It's not you're either enlightened or you're not. We are awakening as we go. So we begin with 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 the uh, the tasks that we find in the eightfold path, and we cultivate an understanding of dukkha. An understanding that it is a conditioned arising, that the conditions which give rise to it are located, are described, the Buddha articulated it in the first teaching and the second teaching. The first teaching is about unpleasant, painful experience, and the second is about what arises because of delusion, because of our thinking things should be different. And it's a practice. It's a development. Listening, watching, reframing. Deepening our understanding and clearing away the delusion. Not being so surprised so that we don't have to add 
that second arrow. That instead of sticking ourselves with a second arrow or a second dart, we can respond with compassion to ourselves for the unpleasantness of our experience and to others as well. So let me just pause and and say, you know, the 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 four tasks are really one task. If we can craft an understanding or deepen an under our understanding of the conditions that give rise to our dissatisfaction, we can dissipate it the way a cloud evaporates in warmer air. So let me just check and see what you think. Comments, thoughts, complaints. Yeah. 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 You have a lot of fading sensation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, letting go. And when I look at this list, the only thing that I see that is actually that I can do is renunciation. Mm -hmm. The rest of it seems like something that happens as a consequence of something else that I'm not that in control of because I keep I keep thinking of, of what you were saying about having an intellectual understanding of the cause of suffering and of clinging and I've meditated a lot on that but I really have a hard time letting go almost like it's not under my control it's Let not it, under your control Oh, good. It's the result. It's not. It's the result of causes and conditions. Okay. So the trick is to cultivate the conditions which will give rise to letting go. And those would be well. Is that what renunciation is? Daniel? Well, renunciation. You know, you can say let go, which is mm -hmm. an expression of renunciation, or you can let go when you realize that holding on is a bummer. When it's not helpful to hold on you will let go automatically. I think we're slow, but we're not stupid. When we know we're hurting ourselves, we stop. But we don't recognize that striving for pleasantness, we don't recognize that that is causing us suffering. We don't see the dissatisfaction in striving. And so we continue to do it. But if it, the voice of another, listen to the teaching. It's one of the reasons why study you know, the Dalai Lama was invited to bless some ashram in India, and he was shown around, and he said, he said, where's the library? He said, no, this is a meditation. He said, I'm not going to bless it. Because study is an integral part. The word, the Buddha says, it's Majama 43. He says, friend, there are two conditions for the arising of right view, the voice of another and wise attention. So all the practice we're doing is learning how to pay attention. Now direct that skill that we've cultivated in the direction that the Buddha points and look at what he's pointing at. He says, these in the, in the orange sort of rounded squares, this is the actual text as translated by uh, Tan Jeff uh, on the Access to Insight website, which you can find. 
the, the dissolution of dukkha, the evaporation of dukkha, the dispelling of dukkha, is the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release of tanha. It doesn't dispense with pain, sorrow, not getting what you want, but it deconstructs dukkha, and by removing the tanha portion, it immediately makes things better. You know, the Buddha found that our strategy of making, of trying to be successful and be happy, is to go after what we want. But that's pro- that's problematic. What he found that what's not problematic, if we refrain from making things worse, things are all of a sudden better by the worse that they weren't made. Is that, is that a sentence? <laughs> so, with the cultivation of right view, the understanding, listen, study, reframe, you know, look, you know, understand more deeply. And the more deeply you understand, the more clearly you'll see, and the less you will be sucked in to the objects, to the bait of, you know, reward or punishment, hope or fear. I'm not sure whether that's helpful. Well, I just think that there's another... I think that there's another component to that, which maybe happens in meditation, or it's not just the intellectual understanding of Mm -hmm. it, or the... There's something... There's something else that happens that allows the release that isn't intellectual. It's not and, intellectual. It's, right. It's insight. Insight allows the release. Mm-hmm. So when you see clearly, you let, the letting go happens automatically. Mm-hmm. So, But knowing where to look, so I can tell you how to hit a curveball. You know, square up your hips, and snap your wrist, keep your eye on the ball. I can give you all the directions, but that doesn't. So you can intellectually know how to do that, but that doesn't mean you can hit one. Mm-hmm. You know, but you step in and you take a swing and say, "Oh, I see what he means." You know, "Oh, I see what that's about," and then slowly, maybe you actually can connect. So you look to the words of another, of the teacher, of the Buddha, for some direction what do now that we know how to pay attention where do we look for look for the impulses that arise in us you know follow up track our intention watch that you know are wanting are not wanting mindfulness of intention that becomes the that becomes so that's what the buddha says watch that follow the instruction and it cultivates the end of dukkha dissipates the cloud of delusion. Anything else? Please. Um, I'm having a hard time reconciling the dissolution of dukkha with apathy. Ah, because we care. Because we care. If if we care, then dukkha can go. But where we look around, if we're not suffering ourselves, what happens when you look around? We see suffering everywhere. We see people in pain and 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 stress and and without a desire to change that. But we care. 
so caring is caring yeah. is different from wanting like that the Rohingya are being murdered without thinking that that is yeah. wrong how do I well you know there's there's a there's it's it's tough when we relate to stuff that is remote so we see this the the images of it's not just the Ro, the Rohingya it's the it's Syria it's Africa it's I mean any place it's next door but what options are available for us we can respond with anger aversion and anger maybe even fear but it's hard to be to be caring directly i mean we can write a check but it's you know but it's easier to be angry at remote events than to be compassionate and to recognize the dukkha that's right next to you that's right in your own heart. We don't notice that. Or, I mean, I, I think the other, so closer to home, I love my children. Um, is that a craving for them, my, my craving to become? Well, there can be. It can be. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. It can be, there can be caring and attentiveness. And, um, and there can be my kid's the number one person in the class. I'm going to put a bumper sticker on my car. So, you know, so there can be, it can be a, a vehicle for self-puffery and ego enhancement. But it doesn't need to be. So what's important is not the action, but the intention. Because we live with our intention. You can do the same action out of a whole variety of intentions. And it actually comes out different. You know, if you're giving a gift because you care about somebody and you thought about it, and this is, or if you're giving the gift because it's a, an appropriate thing to do in the context, or everybody, you know, or because you have to, because, I mean, each one of the different, same action, different intentions. What we want to monitor is our intention, because that's what gives rise, it's what makes unpleasantness and pain dukkha. So, yeah, those stories are painful. They're unpleasant. They're sad. They're crushingly sad. And we can make it worse for ourselves and others. Or we can act out of compassion for ourselves and others in the most skillful way we can figure. So apathy um, is a kind of aversion. We care. Caring is part of us. It comes with a package too. Is that yeah. of any use? Yeah. Yeah. Please. So you may have just answered it, but this came up last week um, when my husband talked about his diagnosis. So what I went away with is what is the intersection between action and acceptance? So, so let's say he gave the story of one doctor telling him this awful diagnosis. If he had accepted that and said, so be it, and went ahead with that, versus him saying, well, I don't want to accept this. I understand that's the suffering part. But where does the action part come in? So when should he have acted rather than just accepted? Well, it's not a matter of should. And I would I would change the word acceptance. I'm I'm not a, I'm I'm not a fan of the word because there's all kinds of 
there's a connotative cloud around it that is, includes resignation and giving up. Let's just acknowledge. You know, just recognize. And then we can go from there. And the action is based, action comes out of our intention, it acts, and our intention comes out of our understanding. You know, we act according to our understanding. So our right view or, or our view conditions our intention. And our intention is right in there with the second truth. You know? And we can act with compassion or we can act with aversion and anger and fear. And we probably will do a little bit of each because it's not a unified thing. I would just say, in closing, you know, the Buddha's got, he he only had one insight, everybody. (laughs) But it was was really good. (laughs) You know, know, so, so we come back to that. If we come back to that, what is this about, you know, where does this fit in his insight about suffering and the end of suffering? There we go. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Thank you guys for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.